of James, chapter 1, reading from verses 19 to 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intensely into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Amen. I'm going to invite Tom The stand? To the stand. To the stand. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> yeah. Let's just pray yeah. before you preach. Father God, bless Tom as he brings your word. Let his words be your words. Holy Spirit, open the eyes and ears and hearts of those listening so that your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Right, usual check. Can you hear me? Yeah. Excellent. This is a good start, because last time I started talking and didn't switch the mic on, so that was smart. Right. Something to add that's off my notes before I even start, which is that what Tracy shared this morning, she said that it came off the back of what, um, what Philip had preached on, and, and absolutely, I can see her saying that, but also I really think that God was prompting her because what she said matches so beautifully with what I'm going to be bringing today as well. So not only did she take last week's sermon and bring it to today, but she's also preceded my sermon now. And who knows, maybe she even preceded next week's and I've got no idea. So thank you for that, Tracy. Genuinely, I really think that God was prompting you uh, to share that. So please be blessed in that. Today's sermon is a classic three-parter. There are three points to this sermon. We are a Baptist church. I would like to say, however, it's not my fault it's a three-point sermon. Because if you read the passage, it's a three-point passage. If I didn't do a three-point sermon off this, I wouldn't be doing truth to the text. And that's never a good thing. So it's a three-point sermon, and I'm going to give you my three points ahead of time. I'm not going to leave you wondering. So my three points today are hearing, receiving, doing. Hearing, receiving, doing. And the title of the sermon, Just Do It. Not affiliated with any sportswear brand or otherwise. <laughs> Just do it. Okay. So, James. James is our super practical guide to Christianity. He's writing, as Philip said last week, if you, if you weren't there, didn't listen to it, I recommend it. But uh, some of the background, James was the well, half-brother, it's a bit complicated that one, but he was a half-brother of Jesus, uh, and um, if what we understand is true, James didn't think much of Jesus during his time of ministry, and it was only after um, Jesus' ascension and uh, hearing the word that James really began to recognize the divinity of the man that he knew as his brother. And he's writing this letter predominantly to uh, Jewish believers um, as well. He did a lot of work with Jewish believers. So 
some of the things that he talks about in this letter that he's written will have been read with a Jewish context in mind. That context being a knowledge of the Old Testament, particularly the Torah, first five books of our Bible, but uh, equally the words of the prophets as well. So a lot of what James is writing probably would have been in the back of the mind, this kind of uh, Old Testament um, stuff as well. So there's going to be a lot of that this morning. He starts by talking incredibly practically. Listening is better than speaking. He says right in the opening part, it is better to listen. We should be quick to listen, slow to anger. Quick to listen, slow to anger. And I think that he's getting at two major things here. One is something immensely practical, which is that if we are slow to speak, slow to anger, but quick to spend time listening, we are much less likely to get angry at people. Simple truth. I'm sure we've all experienced times when our anger has risen and we've both either acted immediately, I'm angry, or we've paused, gone, no, hang on a sec. And I, I'm willing to bet the majority of the times where we've paused and gone, no, no, wait a moment, we've realized that perhaps our anger was not as founded as perhaps it should be. This is especially important in marriage. Absolutely. Slow to anger. She's giving me a look. Slow to anger. Listen. That was dangerous. I'm in trouble now. Slow to anger. Okay. Quick to listen. It's an immensely practical piece of advice that we can take with us wherever we go. Anger is an interesting thing in the New Testament. Okay. Both James and also Paul talk about anger. Uh, in this light. And what they don't say is never get angry. They don't actually say, don't ever get angry. What they say is, take your time to get there and be careful. Because anger is one of those things where it can very quickly slip from something that is perhaps righteous or good to something that becomes selfish and sinful. Anger is a very quick route to sinning. A very, very quick route. Anger for us is often a very human, self-centered, self-focused thing. Paul writes in Ephesians, be angry, but don't sin. Therefore, don't go to bed angry. What's the actual phrasing? Uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Paul's very clear there. He's okay with you being angry, but don't sin. Very, very clear instruction. Anger is a dangerous thing that can lead to sin. And I think, personally, it's quite hard to have righteous anger. Because when we do have righteous anger, that's anger that comes from God, or anger against injustice, or something like that, which is totally a right thing to get angry about. We're in a dangerous ground where very quickly we can slip into something that's not righteous. For example... Um, there was, uh, there was a lady that I knew who was incredibly passionate about the environment, incredibly passionate, and rightly so. But she got so angry at, um, at one of the major fuel companies out there, which, you know, I totally understand for many reasons, especially at the moment with fuel prices, totally understand the damage that they were doing to the environment. But then she started in her anger to call the bosses of those companies some pretty nasty things. She started to use language that perhaps we might question whether it was Christian language. And even further, she started to uh, judge those people in a very heavy and serious way. She started to judge them by saying they're bound for hell. Well, that's not for us as humans to decide. That's for God to decide. That's, that's a God thing. That's not a human thing. So her anger, which we could say is very much justified took a little bit of a step too far, and it took her to a place that perhaps we might say was sinful. So James and Paul both got some very good warnings there. It's okay to be angry, but be careful. Equally here, I think James is building up 
to talking about receiving the word of God because the next sections of this part of the passage are all talking about listening to the word of God receiving it in ourselves and then acting it out and his first point is be quick to listen and slow to anger and I think in that he's kind of preparing ourselves a little bit okay yeah this is immensely practical but also this is a good thing about approaching the word of God I don't know if anybody here has approached the Bible when they feel angry, tense, frustrated with the world. I wonder how those Bible readings have gone. I wonder when we do come to the Bible stressed and angry at something, do we receive the fullness of what we could be? Maybe. God's very powerful and his word is immensely amazing. But I think the human element then can get in the way a little bit. So I think there's a big practical bit of advice there. The word of God is the starting point for our spiritual life with him, with God. We need to be hearers of this word. We have got to listen to it. We've got to look at it. It's got to be part of our lives. But it's not enough to just hear it. Point one, done. Point two, what was point two? Receive, yes. Excellent, you're all awake. That's good, that's good. It's going well. Receiving, okay. James goes to talk about the fact that we need to receive the word of God. It needs to be planted in ourselves. And first, the first thing he kind of does is he really talks about what we need to do before we approach receiving the word of God. We need to get rid of wickedness and filth. Uh, Other versions of the Bible may um, translate the word that's used for filth as sort of tat, if you like. It's this sort of weighing down stuff that we don't need to be dragging around with us. It's the word kind of, in the kind of original language, would have brought connotations of shabbiness. Literally, one of the commentaries I read said it really should be translated as shabby. Not shabby chic, shabby. Just a bit messy. And so James is saying, when you come to receive the word, the first thing you've got to do is make sure you're coming with a pure heart. Okay, now that's not to say that when you read the Bible you're therefore, you know, making sure that you are completely holier than thou, because sometimes we come to the Bible knowing that we just need a bit of grace. And so he talks about this idea of coming and reading it with meekness, or in the NIV it's humble. We come to the word of God in a way that uh, we are being humble. I quite like the word meekness, which some other versions will use. Because meekness and and, and also humility, they're talking about this understanding that when we come to the word of God, we are not coming to it going, well, I already know what it's going to say. I know what it says, and I know what it's going to do for me. Because I've read this verse a thousand times. We all know it. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. Yeah, 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 I've read John 3.16. I've read it a thousand times. I know what it says. When we approach the word of God, instead it should be, okay, I know what I'm about to read, or maybe I don't, and I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to experience something new. Every time we come to the Bible, we have an opportunity to learn something new about God, something new about who he is, something new about the salvation story, something new about history, something new about a deep piece of theology, something new about a situation going on in our lives. This is active. The Word of God is active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It is alive. It's a living thing. When we read it, we have an opportunity to learn something new. And if we come to it with an attitude of, what have you got for me today, God? What are you going to teach me? What are you going to show me? We are far, far more likely to receive the blessings and goodness of God from it. So, we get rid of our moral filth, our shabbiness, if you like. We come to it with humility, and then it's planted in us. And again, James seems to be very, very intentional with a lot of the words he's using here. Planted, implanted, whatever word you read, very clear connotation of something like a seed coming along and being planted in the soil. And I have have little doubt 
that when people were reading this, their minds might have come to that story that Jesus told that's been passed around the churches. Jesus said this story, the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower, the man who takes some seed and spreads it out wide across his land. And where the seed lands affects what it does. The seed that lands on good soil and gets nurtured and watered daily grows into a flourishing, beautiful plant. Perhaps it's a crop that feeds people. The seed that lands on rocky soil takes hold, but very quickly doesn't get very far. The seed that lands amongst the weeds that's not tended to and not looked after very quickly gets choked, and whatever did grow dies out. And the seed that lands on no soil whatsoever doesn't get anywhere in the first place. It's picked up by the birds and taken away. It's eaten. Never gets anywhere. Never even starts to grow. I think that James is being quite intentional here when he says, receive the word of God that it may be planted inside of you. I think James is referring to the idea that when we read the word of God and it is planted inside of us, it is like that seed. It goes into the soil. There's more to it than that. It will start to grow, but it needs to be nurtured, needs to be regularly tended to needs to be looked after. When the weeds begin to sprout, we need to remove the weeds. We need to be watering it. We need to be making sure that the earth is good, occasionally perhaps turning it over. A couple of weekends ago, uh, Nick, uh, Alistair, Helen and I, with a couple of friends, we did some work in our garden. We, we wanted to get our garden sorted out. It was hard work. The ground was rock solid because we hadn't had rain in well, when was the last time it rained? I literally cannot remember the last time we had any significant rain. The, the ground was rock hard. It was hard work doing it. And thankfully, there wasn't a hose pipe ban at the time, so we could actually water the ground just so that we could dig it up. I'm not joking when I say that I put my whole weight, and I'm not a small person, on the shovel, and the shovel dropped down half an inch. Right? And our garden isn't concrete. Let's just be, our garden is dirt. It's, it's, there's a lot of dirt, but, but I went down, dunk, half an inch, maybe. So I said, okay, fine. Water the ground a little bit. Water the ground a bit more. Puddles starting to form. Water it again. Right, here we go, another go. Jump on the shovel, half an inch. It was hard work. But eventually, where we we'd, we'd made these borders, we dug up the ground. Uh, turned all the soil over, and now we've got some plants that are planted. Excellent. The job's not done. In fact, the job will now never end. Because if we want those plants to flourish and thrive, we've got to look after them, haven't we? <laughs> haven't we? <laughs> yes, we've got to look after them. Little dig, little dig. So we've got to look after those plants. Daily, Nick or I will water them. We have to. They're new plants in new soil. If we don't water them, they will wither and they will die. On top of that, and this is also a reminder for the two of us when we go home that we need to do this at some point, weeds have already begun to sprout. They've only been there two weeks and there's already weeds beginning to grow up in our borders and stuff like that. If we don't remove them now, their roots will spread, their roots will overtake the roots of the plants we've just planted, and the plants will at best, not look pretty. At worst, they'll completely die out. The work is never done. It is the bane of a gardener's existence and also the reason why it's a great hobby. It will never be done. You will always be weeding. You will always be weeding, always mowing that lawn. The work is not done. And I think James is being really precise when he talks about the word of God being planted in us. There is still work to be done with that seed. We have to cultivate it. We have to care for it. We have to let it grow. And we have to make sure that when stuff comes along to get in the way of it, to block it, or to choke it, we get rid of it as quickly as we can. That does mean sin. It does mean impure practices. It does mean living in a way that doesn't please God. 
It means harboring anger and, oh, far more dangerous, bitterness. Harboring those things will choke the seed, will damage the plant. Not because God's not more powerful than those things, but because God respects our stupid human choice to hold on to them. We need to get rid of them as they come up. Deal with the foxes. It's another phrase from the Bible. We need to be dealing with these things as they come up. The gardener's work is never done. James is the ultimate realist. He knows that it's all well and good saying, once you've got the seed of God, the word is planted in you. He knows there's a bit more to it than that. He knows that the job is hard. He knows that being human is tough. He knows that there's a confusing paradox in Christians whereby we are saved and redeemed. We're brought back to life from the death that we have in sin, but we still live here and we still have choice and we still do actions and even though we are dead to sin and alive in Christ we still do it we still sin occasionally James knows this and I think he's this is what he's getting at here so we need to receive the word we need to plant it we need to nurture it interestingly the uh, when the verb talks about planting Um, It's used in a very specific Greek tense. I don't understand it, but from what I've read, the tense that's used is very much a tense that talks about the now. It's kind of like the present tense, but it's super present. It's like something that's literally happening right now in this moment. Not a future far-flung thing and not a past thing. It's something that's happening right now. As a person reading this, in its, if it was written in Greek, as a person reading this, they would go, as I'm reading this text, this planting is happening right now, as I'm reading it. It's an active thing. It's not something for the future. It's not something that's happened in the past. It's happening as we're reading God's word. So receiving, let it be planted. What was number three? Oh, that was close. Doing, doing, yes, absolutely. James goes on to say, it is pointless to hear the word and receive the word if we don't then do something with it. It's pointless. It's fruitless. Yeah, you've got the word of God planted in you and you're caring for it, but you do nothing with it. That is empty. That's empty religion. It's not what we're about. We need to be doing something with this word. So he compares two different people. He's got the person that doesn't do the word of God and the person that does. And he compares the person that doesn't do it to someone who briefly looks in a mirror. And he compares the person who does do the word of God to someone who pours over it and receives it. Like a righteous man is the phrase that's used. When we talk about looking in a mirror, first of all, the Greek word that's used is uh, katanointi. Okay, katanointi. And this verb is very much about a quick look. It's a glance. So this person looking in the mirror is going, yep, that's it. Very quick, brief look. That person immediately looks away and forgets what they look like. They might have to go back to the mirror again or something like that. They do nothing with it. Who here has, in a rush, glanced in the mirror to make sure they're okay before they go out of the house and then arrived somewhere having, I don't know, travelled for half an hour only for your friend you're meeting for coffee to go, what's that in your hair? Or, interesting, doing well today. Your shirt's unbuttoned. You know, something like that. How many times does that happen? Because it happens to me all of the time. This is a person who glances in a mirror and goes, yep, cool. Did I actually look? Did I check? No, they don't. They have a very quick look, a quick glance. We end up comparing this with someone looking through the Bible, and the Greek word used here is parakipsis. Now, parakipsis is a word that literally, if we took it in its literal sense, means to stoop over and observe, 
to watch constantly. In fact, the same verb is used when the disciple who Jesus loved, probably John, in John, goes to the tomb to look inside the tomb. He's heard the report that Jesus is not there anymore. So he goes to have a look. And what he does is a parakipsis. He stoops in, looks properly, before determining that, yep, something weird is going on. There's no one here. There's no dead body. It's not a quick glance. He stoops in, and the Bible translates it as the Bible, that, uh, the, Bible the, the disciple that Jesus loved, stooped in to have a look. The same phrase is used here. And it means to pour over. When I pour over the Bible as I've got it open in front of me now, I'm leaning over it to make sure that my entire focus is on it. So when James talks about this other person, they aren't just quickly glancing at the Bible, kind of, yeah, 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 flick through, flick through, cool, that's my Bible reading done for the day. He's talking about someone that spends time to actually get to grips with what's going on. Practically, This doesn't mean that you necessarily have to set aside an hour every single day to make sure that you read every individual word and have gone, yeah, I've read that word, the next one. What it might mean is reading just one small part of it a couple of times, three times. It was a really practical piece of advice from um, Bible College, which was if you're going to do a, a Bible reading, you could read a large number of chapters, you know, finish a book in one go, but much better to pick a passage and just read it, read it again, read it again. Then have a think about what you've just read and then read it again and read it again and just go over that passage over and over and over to, if you like, give the passage an opportunity to speak to you, to give it a chance to be slow to speak but quick to listen to what the passage is saying. Stooping over the Bible, spending time really dwelling on what is there. And James says, because don't forget, this is, a, this is a metaphor. James is saying, if you are a doer of the word, you are like the person that spends time reading it intently, letting it work in you. If you're not a doer of the word, you're the sort of person who comes along, has a quick glance, and then ignores it. You might as well have not read it. Because as soon as you move away, you've forgotten what was written in it. It's a metaphor. I have a metaphor for this. Nick's grinning because she gave me the idea for this metaphor. In fact, she, she told me the metaphor. And she gave me permission to deliver the metaphor. So, in case there's any doubt, it was her idea and I've got permission to share it. Nick likes to do her makeup. She loves to do her makeup. I can tell when Nick has done her makeup in a rush versus when she's taken the time to really focus on what she's doing. If Nick does her makeup in a rush, as you might expect, there are mistakes. There are things that don't look right, colors that haven't blended properly, clumps of foundation that she's missed. Because what she's done is she's gone right, Makeup on, quick look in the mirror, yep, look good, walk away, and then I go, oh, didn't spend very long on that, did you? Not the right thing to say. Uh, Definitely not the right thing to say. Men in the room, in case there's any doubt, never, never, never a good thing to say. But I will say, you might, you know, you might want to just have a quick look because there's a bit here and a bit here, and she'll go, oh, I didn't look properly. She didn't look. When she sits with that mirror, when she's got the time to sit with that mirror, and right now none of us have the time because baby, but when she sits and has the time and she looks, she does a bit, she looks in the mirror, checks it over, does a bit more, looks in the mirror, checks it over, does a bit more, it's brilliant. It's a work of art. There you go. See? It's a work of art. She takes the time to look and check. And at the end of it, If you have a conversation with her about what she's done, she can tell you. She'll tell you the brushes that she used. She'll tell you the makeup and even potentially the shades of makeup that she's used. She'll talk about the techniques that she did. If she does it in a rush, she'll say, oh, you know, I just put some on. 
If she spends the time and you then ask her, what did you do? She can tell you because she remembers, because she spent the time doing it, the time focusing on it. If we are to be doers of God's word, as we should all aspire to be, we have got to spend time pouring over it. And James says, when we do this, it brings us blessing. We receive the blessings of God. I don't know about you, I want the blessings of God. I can't think of anything that would be better than God's blessing pouring out over me. Philip talked about uh, persevering in trials last week and about the idea that we're supposed to count it joy when we go through trials because those, those trials build us up in God. They teach us about him. That's really difficult to do if you're not receiving God's blessings. We've got to receive God's blessings if we're going to do that. So let's be doers, because then by being doers, we're fulfilling the commandments that Jesus has given us. We're doing what God wants us to do. And, somewhat selfishly, we're getting God's blessings. It's not selfish, but, you know, if those aren't three good reasons to do it, I don't know what are. We've got to be doers of this word. The man in the mirror observes, goes away, forgets. The believer looks intently, continues to do so. It's not a one-off thing. They, they continue to read over the word, and then they act. When James then talks about this idea of um, it essentially being fruitless to, uh, to read the word and receive it, but then do nothing with it, I'm sure that his Jewish readers may well have been reminded of uh, a couple of the prophets. The book of Amos, it's a book that I don't think we talk about a lot, it's quite short. Um, it's filled with a lot of doom and gloom prophecy. Uh, this, is, this is one of the many prophets that came along to prophesy the end, basically, of, uh, of an independent um, Israel. Uh, in that time. It, it, he was prophesying about countries coming and, and attacking them, countries coming and taking over them. He was probably, I need, I'd need to double check this, he was probably also prophesying about their eventual um, uh, exile to Babylon. Okay, There's a lot of doom and gloom prophecy in Amos, which is probably why as Christians we don't tend to spend a lot of time looking at it. Because it's quite a difficult thing to grasp. It's certainly not light-hearted reading. Romans, lovely. Amos, ouch. But Amos has this really interesting storyline running through it, essentially where God calls Amos um, to bring many prophecies, including the doom and gloom ones. And the reason that God does this is because his people are technically doing everything they should be. All of the sacrifices, all of the religious practices, the worshipful practices of God, they're doing. They're having the right feasts at the right time. They're giving the right sacrifices to God for the right things. They're doing their tithe. But God turns around and says, you have missed the point. Because while you're doing all of that, you're being completely immoral over here. You're doing some despicable things. And in fact, uh, let me have a look, because there's a particular passage that is just incredible. Um, make sure I find the right one. It's chapter 5, just got to find the right bit. Here we go. So... God says to Amos to bring this word. So Amos is speaking here, but he's speaking the word of God, as the prophets often did. Uh, and he talks about the day of the Lord. This was an awaited day for, for God's people, the day that God would come down to them and, and save them, probably the day that they were expecting the Messiah to come along. And God says in regard to the day of the Lord, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for it? The day will be darkness for you, not, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion 
only to meet a bear. There's some wonderful irony there. You've just got away from that lion that's chasing you. I'm safe, only to be met with a mountain bear, which, by the way, is a terrifying prospect. You're probably better off with the lion than the mountain bear, in all honesty. Uh, As though he'd entered the house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. God then goes on to say, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to your music. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What God's saying there is, you're bringing me these sacrifices, but... They taste bitter, they taste horrible, and I want nothing to do with them. Don't bother singing me hymns, they're just noiseless, nasty, clanging noises to me. Why? Because your hearts are not in the right place. Because although you're ticking the boxes, you're not living it, you're not doing it, you're not acting it. We've got similar, let's see if... How well my uh, Bible flicking knowledge... Oh, that worked very well. We've got similar in Micah. It's a very, very well-known passage. It's a verse that's often quoted um, somewhat outside of its context. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Read the bit before it, because it adds context. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves only a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. No, 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 no. He has shown you what is required. He's shown you what is good. What does he require? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with him. If we simply receive the word and then do nothing with it. If we, as Philip talked about last week, are just come to church Christians, Christian on Sunday morning and then forget about it at the other end, we're not walking with God. At worst, at best, we're missing out on God's blessings. Brian Hill would say God's many, many blessings. We are missing out on God's many, many blessings. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that when we come to church and we sing the songs and we pray the prayers and we read the Bible out loud and we nod in agreement with the pastor when he's preaching, when we're doing all of that, but then we're going away and not doing anything with it, God actually despises despises that worship. That's a weird thought. He despises it because the outward thing is what we're told to do, but the heart is not in the right place. It's our hearts that God is interested in. It's our hearts. It's who we are. It's our love for him. And it's not just what we do, but why we do it that's vital and important to God. Think about the widow's mite, another famous parable. Rich people pouring money into the coffers, but it's nothing to them. The widow comes along and she gives a single penny and is mocked for it. But that widow has probably given more. Even as a percentage of her own wealth, she's given more than any person has and God blesses that widow. It's about the heart. We need to be doers of this word. Now, 
I will just put, say, as an aside, as a church, I think we're doing this wonderfully. We pray for the broken. We pray for things in our world that aren't right. We pray for issues locally. Prayer is great. And if there's literally nothing you can do, prayer is something everyone can do. Great. But on top of that, we are also supporting. We pray for Ukraine, but we've also donated. We pray for the lonely, and we run Tuesday Club and Kingdom Cafe. We pray for our young people, and we have a youth cafe. We are very, very good as a church. I do genuinely think we are very, very good as a church of going, okay, we've got this, we come to church on a Sunday, but there's more to it than that. But it does go for our personal, individual walk with God as well. Don't just come to church on a Sunday. God is every day of the week. And a Christian is 24-7 calling. Being a Christian is a 24-7 calling. James, ever the practical person, finishes off by demonstrating this in case there was any ambiguity. If anyone considers themselves religious but keeps a, and does not keep a tight rein on their tongue, he ties it back to the bit at the beginning, they deceive themselves, their religion is worthless. Okay, you come to church, you take communion, you say, I'm sorry, God. By the way, these are all really important things. But then we say nasty things about someone. We lose our rag and we shout. We accuse people of things they haven't done. We talk about them behind their back. We gossip. Or, worse than, well, I wouldn't say worse than gossip, just as bad. We're libelous about them. That means we're spreading untruths. Gossiping is the spreading of a truth that we have no reason to spread. Libel is the spreading of a false truth about someone. That religion then, the Bible says it's worthless. That's tough. How many times have I been caught coming away from church and saying something nasty? Don't answer it, Nick. How many times? How many times have I gone away from church and then gone to work the next day and lost my temper at someone? It's tough. It's a really, really tough call. But it's here in black and white. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's not limited to orphans and widows. Okay, let's be really clear here. James talks about orphans and widows because at the time, orphans and widows were pretty much the, uh, the epitome of the most needy people in society. Okay, if you were an orphan you had no prospects unless you were lucky enough to be adopted by someone. But good luck. Good luck even being spotted by someone to be adopted. Equally, if you were a widow, you would lose everything when you became a widow. This was a very patriarchal, male-led society. While you were married, you enjoyed all the benefits of your husband's estate. If your husband died... Back then, you were entitled to none of it. If you had children, it would go to the children. If you didn't, it would go to the nearest family member. And if there was no family member for it to go to, rather than it going to you, it would probably be offered up to the temple or taken as some kind of tax or something like that. You lost all rights to what your husband had, what you had. You lose it all in that moment. These were the most needy people in society. So, if I'm going to paraphrase this, religion or faith that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, look after those that need looking after. Be a light in the world. Help those that need help. Put aside your fears, worries, disgust about their situation, who they are, go and help them because they need it and that is the outworking of the word. 
and then to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. We talk a lot as Christians about being in the world but not of the world, okay? It's a, it's a phrase essentially from the Bible and what it means is we're physically here but we don't let the world come and affect us. Again, really difficult to do. We are dead to sin. We are alive in Christ. We need to make sure that we're not letting the world pollute us. So how do we do that? Because we're here and we're surrounded by it all of the time. Everywhere we go, we are surrounded by the world. So how do we do it? What do we do? Well, James, James doesn't give the answer here. He doesn't feel the need to, for whatever reason. Perhaps that's because as God was inspiring James to write this letter, and as James had spent time with people like Paul and Peter, uh, you know, apostles of the early church, perhaps he already knew that the answer was out there. The answer is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In fact, particularly, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left, he promised his disciples a helper, parakletos, a helper, that helper being the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't just refer to the Spirit of God, one of the Trinity, as God. He specifically referred to him as a helper, here to help us. And the benefit we have with the Holy Spirit is that previously, the Spirit of God, who is present in the Old Testament, by the way, any time we talk about the Spirit of God, when we read about the Spirit of God, we are almost certainly talking about the Holy Spirit. But instead of the Holy Spirit coming upon people and filling them with God's power as an odd one-off thing here and there, the Holy Spirit is now here to reside in us everywhere we go. When you become a Christian... You are inviting God into your life. And quite literally, the Holy Spirit comes and fills you anew. As you die to sin and become alive in God, the Holy Spirit comes along. Why? You know what? I think it's because Jesus was a human and he knew temptation. And he goes, you need a helper. Sorry, folks. I love you. It's all here for you. You live in me. You'll never sin again. But I get it. So here's a helper. And the helper is me. It's God. I mean, do we need a better helper? Is there a better helper available? No, of course not. It's the Holy Spirit. God doesn't just abandon us to this. James doesn't talk about it in the passage. I'm sure that's because there was enough teaching about the Spirit of God and God being our helper that James didn't feel the need to even explain it. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. So I guess if I'm going to sum this up, got my three points, hearing, receiving, and doing. Doing being the really important one, if we've heard and received. My summary would be this. If you think this is difficult, you're right. And if you think this is easy, one of two things. Either... You're already experiencing the Holy Spirit working in you, in which case, great, carry on. Or perhaps you need to approach this with some humility, as James calls you to do. And if you think it's tough, and I'd agree with you, let's spend some time praying and asking the Holy Spirit to help us in the way that he already says he will. Let's read our word, read our Bible, whether that's you're great in the morning at getting up and the first thing you do is spending half an hour or whatever it is reading over the Bible, that's great. I'm not that sort of person. <laughs> I wish I was, but I'm not. I struggle to read the Bible. I'll be honest, I put my hands up, you know. I'm not up here as a holier than thou. I'm definitely not. I struggle to read my Bible. So my challenge for me is to spend the time that I do read the Bible properly pouring over it and saying to God, teach me teach me. When I'm listening to sermons or I'm listening to a new piece of worship music, I'll be saying to God, teach me, teach me, and then help me to go out and do this. We must go. Live to feed the hungry, to stand beside the broken. We must go.
We must be doers of this word. It's difficult, but we can do it because we've got the Holy Spirit. So I want to give you an opportunity just as um, the band come back up to, uh, to say a new, this is a private thing, okay? I, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud and I'm, I'm praying it for myself. And if you want to join in with me, feel free to do so in the quietness of your own heart where I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to fill me anew and ask the Holy Spirit to help me in receiving the word and then going out and doing it to keep myself pure and to deal with the weeds as they begin to grow. Holy Spirit, God, I ask you here now to fill me afresh with, with yourself, with your spirit, that you might help me to remain pure and to go out and help those that are most in need. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to read your word, to dwell on it, to spend time on it, not just reading it quickly for the sake of it, but really spending time poring over it and understanding it. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help me to weed out the weeds as they crop up and grow and to continue feeding this. Thank you, God, that you gave us yourself as a helper. Thank you, Jesus, that you died so that I could be made clean. And I pray for everyone here today that you would fill them afresh and help us as a church, as we read your word, as we hear your word, as we receive your word, God. Help us to then go and do it. Drive us, Lord, and be in those conversations, be in those actions. Thank you for sending us your helper. We praise you and we honour you for who you are and what you've done. In your mighty name. Amen.